Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. Hi, I'm Jackie Strom, the Prevention and Resource Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by certified nurse midwife Samira Sharif to learn more about her work supporting pregnant people, their babies, and their health outcomes. Samira has been a women's health nurse serving mid-Michigan families since the mid-1980s. In April 2020, Samira became the medical director of Michigan State University Sexual Assault Healthcare Program. Welcome, Samira. Well, thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. We're so excited to have you. And to get us started, for those of us who don't know, including myself, could you explain what a midwife is? Yes. Well, there's there's several different ways to become a midwife, there's different um, designations, I guess you could say. Uh, there is the what used to be called the direct entry midwife or the uh, uh, professional midwife. There's the licensed professional midwife. There's the certified nurse midwife. So essentially a midwife in whatever capacity is a woman generally, although there are uh, male midwives, that attend women during their childbearing experience, meaning that they they will generally see the woman when she is pregnant, you know, for prenatal visits, and she's there to um, help the woman, assist the woman when she is giving birth. She's the professional that is there to make sure that things are going well. Um, And then she also will see the woman postpartum for her postpartum care as well. Um, So that, that would be what a midwife is, no matter you know, what the category. And this, the distinctions come with the training. With a nurse midwife, which is what I am, I have a RN degree, as well as further training on the graduate level, specifically in midwifery. Direct entry midwives, uh, licensed midwives, licensed, prof- licensed professional midwives, certified professional midwives have uh, advanced training just in midwifery, meaning women's health specifically. The registered nurse, of course, has training during uh, her professional training, has training in all of the areas of of healthcare. Awesome, okay. And so how did you come to be in this work? Was there something that inspired you to pursue nursing and midwifery as a career? Well, yes, I, you know, I, was always interested in healthcare, in, in medicine, and and just in healthcare in general. And uh, my first degree, I was a medical technologist, so I actually worked for the local Red Cross doing blood banking and those kind of things. So um, I was drawn to midwifery, and I feel called to midwifery after my first pregnancy and birthing experience. It was so unlike what I had prepared myself for. I had did the, the natural childbirth classes. I had um, you know, worked with the childbirth educator and felt really prepared. But when I got to the hospital, I, it, it just, it, 
I, I wish I could find the right words to describe what happened. Um, it just was not what I had expected. I felt disempowered. I felt like things were, um, um, I was made to feel like I had to choose what they were telling me to choose. I did not have a lot of choices. And that was almost 46 years ago because my oldest child is 46. So that was back when they were still taking women to delivery rooms, the, the old fashioned traditional delivery rooms where your legs were uh, put in stirrups and buckled in, uh, your, your arms, your hands were strapped in wrist restraints and it was a forcep delivery. I, I just felt like it, this, this can't, something is just not right about this. This is not the way that birth is supposed to go. And I remember being in the recovery room and saying uh, to my son as he was laying in the little uh, plastic bin, uh, bassinet, uh, wow, he, he was just so peaceful and everything. And I just remember looking at him saying, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be a better way. So I began to really read and study everything that I could get my hands on about childbirth, particularly natural, what was called then natural childbirth. Uh, preparation for natural childbirth, um, midwives, all of the all of the things that seem to have been missing from the experience that I had, and also learning how to be an advocate for women during their childbirth experiences. So I spent um, uh, a lot of years as a childbirth educator and as a, what's called a doula. Um, I spent a lot of years doing that and, and really feeling called to become a midwife in order to help women have the kind of birth experience that they wanted, where they felt empowered and they felt like they had the decision-making power. And, you know, I just, my thing is, I, I just really love working with women and families. I mean, I love doing women's health care. I absolutely love babies. Um, I love brand new people. That's the way I put it. Um, and it, it's always, to me, it's like a promise. Uh, spiritually, it's like God's promise that the world is going to go on. Things are, and, and the potential that lies in every human being as they come into the world. And it's an honor. I just feel, I feel honored to be in that space quite. Yeah, that, that's probably a good way to put it. I really love that. Yeah. It, it's so hopeful. For the future. Yeah. Yeah. The healing. I, I definitely feel called to be a healer. Um, definitely called to be a healer. And it, for me, it was a matter of figuring out how that needed to play out in my life. So, yeah. Great. So at what point um, then did you go to nursing school and, and become an actual midwife? Yes. I actually, I decided to become a midwife after meeting midwives, in particular, Kitty Ernst was uh, someone that I met even before I became a nurse or, or a midwife. And again, this was part of that calling. And, and after being uh, in conversation with them, uh, knowing that this was what I wanted to do. And at the time, uh, Kitty Ernst was talking about a program that they were going to be starting at Frontier, used to be called Frontier School of Midwifery and Family Nursing. It's now Frontier Nursing University. But they were going to be starting this innovative program 
based on the concept of distance learning and you know where you wouldn't have to leave your you wouldn't have to move your from your home state or wherever you were living uh, to come to Kentucky for class. It would be done in a distance mode. So that was really exciting. So I knew that nurse midwifery was what I wanted to do. So while I was working for the Red Cross, that was when I went back to, I decided to go back to nursing school to pursue midwifery. Um, and, and I liked the idea of, of doing nursing as a basis for me becoming a midwife because it gave me more training and information in other aspects of, of uh, healthcare, so to speak. So I went back to nursing school. That would have been in 84, 1984, 85. I'm dating myself a little bit. And, um, and yeah, so I finished nursing school uh, December of 1985 and took my boards and passed those first time around in 1986, early 1986. There, you know, I, I always say that it seems like the big events of my life, there's big stories that go behind it. I uh, was getting ready to do the midwif, not midwifery, I, my apologies, the nursing boards, what's called the NCLEX. Back in 86, they only gave them, you could only sit the boards twice a year, February and uh, I want to say August or something like that. I just remember that February of 1986, there, I had to travel from East Lansing where I lived to Grand Rapids because there were only two places in the state where they, uh, you could sit. That was Grand Rapids and Detroit at that time. So I'm driving um, to Grand Rapids and there's like the ice storm of the century. And I had left East Lansing at about 4.30 in the morning to meet some classmates for breakfast at eight, gave myself plenty of time. Uh, board started at, at 8 a.m. 8 so I'm sorry, we're gonna meet for breakfast at six. And so I am stuck on the freeway. Oh, ice, no. ice everywhere. And back then, literally it was a sit in a desk you know, a pencil and Scantron sheet. That's how you did it. And there was no, if you were late, there was, you just had to wait till later right. in the year. So I literally, finally stuff got moving. I pulled into um, um, the Amway Grant. It's a big convention kind of place where they did the boards. I pulled into a federal judge's parking space. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know all this till after I came out of the exam. I, I run in and ironically, or I should say coincidentally, one of my classmates from nursing school, we look at each other, you know, cause we're running and we're both running. We get in and they literally close the doors maybe, maybe five minutes after I got there. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Oh yeah. So I, you know, I just tell people, you know, when things are, things are supposed to go your way no matter what happens they'll go your way so i i made it there and sat the board exams and stuff but i remember just thinking to myself how how am i going to make this so for me that just kind of reinforced this is what you're supposed to be doing so yeah very cool yeah so you've been in your current role as the director of the Michigan State University Sexual Assault Healthcare Program for a little over a year now and officially opened the center in November last year in 2020. So can you share with us more about the program and your role? Yes, absolutely. I, I started um, April 
of 2020. So kind of right after the the, <laughs> the start of the pandemic, yeah. the pandemic, yeah. And but this was something that uh, a group had been meeting together on campus. Uh, the person who's the director of the Center for Survivors, some experts um, um, in the field of sexual assault and. Uh, sexual assault nurse examiners, et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, that was in place before I got there. So they had been working probably close to two years by the time I came on board. So when I came on board in April, um, there was there was really no working on campus. The charge, what I was charged to do was to begin working on uh, writing protocols and procedures, um, putting together this program, our center is campus-based, but it's not connected with student health services. Um, it is freestanding, meaning that it's not even in a building that is a designated healthcare facility on campus. It's probably one of the few uh, campus, truly campus-based programs um, that are not connected with university health services. Um, really, really focused on trauma-informed care for survivors of, of sexual assault. Uh, all of our nurses are sane, you know, trained. Um, all of the nurses, I can say there are eight of us that work now, we, we've got our core group together, are committed to, to being the, the first step to survivors of sexual assault first steps to them uh, go, moving forward in their journey journey towards healing. So, um, and the way that it's designed, the way that our physical space is designed, it's designed for privacy. We take care of one patient at a time. The decor, the lighting, everything is uh, trauma-informed, the way that the, it's, it's designed. This, we are, we're located within the Center for Survivors. Those are the outer offices and we're like on the inner space secured, only certain people have access, um, electronically swiped, secured. Uh, we have soundproofing so that even when somebody is there, uh, nobody can hear what you're saying. It's not like people walking down the hall can hear what you're saying. So focused on trauma-informed care, privacy, confidentiality, um, patients that come to us can decide to report or not report. The way that we are designed, the way that we are set up, the nurses that are working there, we're not, uh, we are not mandatory reporters. Whereas other healthcare professionals on the campus, if a patient comes in and mentions anything about sexual assault, they have to identify that they're a mandatory reporter, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted to make this the kind of program where privacy and confidentiality are of the utmost importance so that survivors can come and feel uh, secure in knowing if they don't want anybody to know, the only person that's gonna know is the nurse and the medical advocate that you come in contact with for your care. And that you can decide what you want. Do you want a um, sexual assault nurse exam or do you just want um, maybe prophylaxis medications for sexually transmitted infections? Do you just need to talk? Do you need help to, to um, feel secure and safe? So the patient dictates what they want. 
and how much involvement or no involvement in terms of law enforcement or university. So very, very focused on the patient. That is, that is our primary concern that, you know, we are taking care of patients. Yeah. Providing all of those options is so yes. important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And what has it been like, like, what has it been like opening up this center, this program during COVID? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting is that because we were supposed to open like before the pandemic opened, when they hired me to start in April, we were supposed to open like May or June. So one of the things that was a lesson that I learned from all this is that you you have to know, the best way I can put it is that you have to know people that know people. And I'll give you an example. Personal protection equipment that, you know, everything was shut down. And I was saying, we cannot open without personal, the the nurses are not, we're not seeing patients without our ability to protect the patient and the ability to protect ourselves as healthcare professionals from potential infection from patients. So just simple things like masks, uh, face shields, gloves and stuff, all of a sudden everything was on lockdown and they had hired another nurse by this time. And so the two of us were like, placing orders and stuff like that. All it required was for us, for the director of the Center for for Survivors to make a call to someone. And all of a sudden, all of the staff that they understandably were, were, what's the word I'm looking for? They were, they were keeping on quarantine, you know, all of a sudden we had access to that. So, um, that was one of the lessons is, you know, always know where all the players are, so to speak. Also learned how important it is um, to have a team of people that are working together, no matter what the circumstances are and, and being committed to the work that needs to be done and figuring out, uh, being able to work together and figure out how to do the work in the best possible way uh, for the patients, of course, number one, and for staff and, and the the security of both, so to speak. That was a, that was a big lesson. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome that you were able to, you know, overcome and and still be able to open up, even if it wasn't exactly when you were like had it planned, but you know, opening up in November. Yeah. Yeah. We opened in November. So it it took a while, but everything, you know, everything was, um, um, kind of slow down or, or even sure. at a standstill. So we did not have the full contingency of students on campus. And of course that, that was a blessing. You know, we, we haven't had many patients because of that, but what it also allowed us to do is to have time to iron out things in the, in the program, in the, in the um, implementation of the program, because they just announced that we're going to have a full contingency of students on campus. Um, the the sports schedule is going to go full force, and you know they're going to try to make up for the lack of last year's sure. sports schedule. So it allowed us to um, iron out some things. You know, yeah, yeah. That's great, though. Yeah. So I know that you've worked lots of different places in your mm-hmm. career. 
Um, and I, I want to not shift gears, but I want to focus in on talking about health outcomes for patients. Okay. Sure. And, Absolutely. And we know that those health outcomes are different based on race or class or other social conditions. And so could you tell us a little bit about what your experience has been working cross-culturally with patients? Yes. One of the, one of the blessings of being able to work cross cross culturally is actually learning how many things are common um, in terms of women's health care but and in particular with pregnancy mm-hmm. you know moms moms want the same thing across the board they want a healthy pregnancy uh, they want to birth in a way that's safe and and affirming for them and you know and they want their their children or you know or their babies to be cared for so that's, that's been universal, no matter where you come from, no matter what language you speak, uh, spiritual uh, discipline, whatever. I, I really find that the way that birth works is that it changes how a woman interacts in the world. Hmm. That's another thing that's, that's cross-cultural. It changes how she sees the world and sees herself in the world, especially with the first child, you know, if you, this is your first baby, you, you go from being uh, a woman and a woman that's pregnant and then you give birth and now you're a woman that's gone through pregnancy and birth, but now you're a mother, you know? So yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, wow. It, it's such a, it's such a, that's why I'm stumbling for words. It's such a beautiful thing that that every human being that has ever existed has come through the birth process. That's to me, that's mind blowing right there. The, the issues with the discrepancies that come when you're caring for women from different cultural backgrounds, racial and ethnic backgrounds, really has a lot to do with the systems that are in place in terms of how we give care and the way that we're taught to give care. Uh, I mean, they've, they've done, studies that have shown uh, healthcare providers' attitudes about people of color in general. And then if you're talking about birth, uh, women of color giving birth, particularly for black women, we tend to not be believed. Oh, your pain can't be that bad. You're not really feeling, it's it's like, for lack of a better way of saying it, uh, the ultimate gaslighting, you know. Oh, you're not in labor. And I remember working as a staff nurse because all of the nursing that I've ever done has been maternal child. I remember having coworkers that, you know, I had to say, what are you saying? You know, well, she can't, you know, she can't be in that much pain, you know. Okay, so she's not in pain, but the other white woman that you're caring for is in pain. And now you're getting a doctor's order for pain relief. So this was way back in the day when we didn't do epidurals. So just things that the, the way that healthcare providers um, treat women of color when they're getting care, whether it's women's health care or if it's pregnancy related, birth, the, the hospital experience, those kind of things, the, the, the disparities in terms of how we are viewed um, is consistent with a system that views us in that, that way, even outside of the birth experience. Um, when we talk about women from other cultures, if you're not an English speaking person giving birth in America, how people can look at you and how you were treated. Again, this is, this, this is what I've observed. Okay, 
can you call an interpreter? Or can you, you know, just simple things like that. And speaking to people in such a way, I always say, you know, if somebody um, speaks little English or what we might call broken English or something like that, that, that doesn't render them mentally incompetent. You know, it means that they're learning another language and you only know one. Exactly. <laughs> you know? So find a way to communicate. You know, even back in the day before, now we can do we can do video interpreters and stuff like that. We had uh, the Red Cross had a language bank of people who did interpreting. So when I worked as a staff nurse, if we had someone come in, um, if the people that came in with her were limited in terms of uh, their speaking and understanding of English, we called on the telephone. So that, but, but people, healthcare providers still have this, this, this prejudice that because this woman is non-English speaking, somehow um, you can't believe what she says. First of all, you don't know what she's saying, but somehow she doesn't deserve the level of attention and care that uh, a white woman would if she was in the same kind of situation. I've seen in income areas that uh, have been designated as low income. People again think because people come from areas where they are economically disadvantaged that somehow they are not deserving of the same level of respect and care or that they don't have the capacity to truly understand what's going on. The patronizing that uh, goes on in terms of how you talk to people. I mean, it happened to me um, uh, when my, oldest when my son was um in a in a car in an accident I, I won't go into all that but anyway I got to the hospital and the nurse now this is before they figured out that I was a healthcare professional mm -hmm. the nurse comes in and she says you know you're we're gonna wash this off of your baby's head your, your son's head because there's some little bitty germs that could be in there and so I just let her play it out. <laughs> wow. And when she got done, I started talking to her in medical language and her eyes got like big as saucers. I don't know what she went on and did. She figured out where I worked or whatever. And she came back in, the doctor came back in and all of a sudden I was Mrs. Sharif. Uh, you know, this is what I said. I understand. I understand clearly what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and the nurse is like, I didn't mean any harm. I know you meant what you said when you said it in the way that you said it. So, and this is stuff that continues because here we are eons later, I'm still a healthcare professional. And this is still the way that I know from personal experience, as well as being in the profession, how women can be treated in the, in the healthcare business. Well, it is a healthcare business, but in the healthcare, by healthcare professionals. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we know that racism and systemic discrimination mm -hmm. and prejudice, it, it mm -hmm. runs deep. Yes. Um, and really, really and, and I think what you're saying about how it can really impact long-term health outcomes for folks. Absolutely. And, you know, the whole concept, you know, that's been studied now and the information is coming out about adverse childhood events or just you know, adverse events that happen in a per person's life and how that impacts their health. Uh, there's, there are some healthcare providers that, again, if you've had, um, if one of your adverse childhood events was being brought up in an area economically disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera, that does not mean that that person deserves 
less in terms of what they receive from, from healthcare providers and from the healthcare system. It should not, uh, being poor uh, should not be, um, um, for lack of a better way of saying, a death sentence for you. Just right. because you're poor should not mean that you are not entitled to healthcare. But in this country, the viewpoint is that healthcare is um, uh, you is something that you should earn. You know, you you get educated, you get a good job with benefits, or you become a millionaire and you can pay cash for all of the healthcare that you could possibly need. Uh, and and we can't that that can't be this that can't be how we take care of people. Um, I have a family member now that just got diagnosed with lung cancer, and had she if she had not had the kind of insurance that she has, or even the insurance that she has, the amount of of monies that are going to be needed is it's ridiculous. You know, healthcare should be health healthcare should be a right and not a privilege. I guess that's the the best way of looking at it. And looking at racism in terms of how it impacts healthcare. I mean, that that's just, mm-hmm. as I said earlier, uh, healthcare providers' attitudes, people's attitudes about poor people and especially black poor people or um, Latinx uh, poor people, it, it, it's so interwoven. And it's so, my, my best solution is that it has to be a part of how we are trained as healthcare professionals. That healthcare is healthcare, no matter who the person is that's coming for healthcare. And we have to learn how to to disconnect our implicit biases. Uh, First of all, to recognize them, work on them and disconnect them from the process of giving care to people. Now that's a a big statement, (laughs) that's a big statement. But that's that's what has to happen. I, I firmly believe that that's what has to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It has to start with training right before you yes. even walk into um, a hospital or, you know, a place where you're providing care. We have to examine our own biases, like you said. Yes, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe that healthcare is I believe healthcare is a right. You know, it's it's the issue that some people have, you know, they, they have a, a belief system that everybody deserves to be born, but then that doesn't translate, translate into everybody deserves to be cared for right. once they're born. The, the, the belief is we just need to get the, the child here and then, you know, we don't have any more responsibility. I believe as a healthcare provider, anyone that comes to me deserves my care. Mm-hmm. Um, and people used to ask me when I, when I first started out in practice, I've worked for a number of different practices. Uh, people used to ask me, well, do you take Medic- Medicaid, which is Michigan, you know, public uh, health insurance? It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't look at the face sheet. I don't care what kind of insurance you have. I might be a bit concerned if you're coming to me for, you know, women's GYN care and, you want contraception or something like that. And the only reason I might be concerned is that some insurances cover this and some insurances does don't. Mm-hmm. I really leave that to the pharmacist. That, you know, this is this is what you've decided. Let's see if your insurance will cover it. And if not, you know, what can we do? 
But before I go in and see a patient, I don't look and see what your what what your healthcare uh, coverage is. That's I just the way that I practice is that's not my business in terms of caring for you. You are here for a normal yearly GYN exam as a woman, or you're here for pregnancy or postpartum. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. We have people in practices. That's what they do. They're billers. <laughs> you know that that's their business. And I, you know, I have worked for practices that only took certain insurances. That that was just that was just their their policy at the time. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it is a business. I mean, healthcare. Um, see, I'm dating myself again. Back when healthcare was just healthcare, now right. it's the healthcare business. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important, though, what you're emphasizing is that we we treat people like humans that deserve dignity and respect. And mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. regardless of their circumstances, you know, we, we want to make sure we're providing care for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So and, you my, know, the, the differences that we've implemented as human beings, the things that that make us different and the things that we pay attention to and the things that we uh, used to be biased uh, uh, against one another, so to speak. The thing is, we all get here the same way. We all, I mean, if, if there was a real hierarchy, if you will, in terms of human beings, wouldn't there be a distinction in how we get here? Wouldn't there be a, I don't know, <laughs> this is this is when my, my imagination kind of goes crazy. Um, but we all get here the same way. We we all get born. I always tell my patients, there's only two ways out. You know, you're <laughs> you're either gonna push your baby out or we're gonna help your baby out in another way. There, there's there's nothing, there's nothing to say that the rich people they get to be uh birthed in a different physiologic way. Now we know in terms of where people give birth, there can be a, a, sure a big has. difference. But the process in terms of how we get here is absolutely the same. For, for everybody. Yeah, I, I love, I love that. <laughs> it, it's, it's so, you know, it's really, it's mind blowing when you think, if you really think about it, all of the stuff that we use to categorize one another and, and, you know, again, the implicit bias that we, we bring to how we interact with one another or care for one another until we decide to dismantle that. Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about the fact that we all come here the same way. It's the same process, and there's only two ways that the, you know, that, that the process happens. So, yeah. yeah. So my last question, as we're kind of wrapping this up, um, in your work, you've provided support to survivors who may be pregnant. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice to share with advocates and nurses and midwives when working with um, pregnant people who may also be survivors of sexual That's violence? Awesome. Yes. Uh, we do know that, you know, through research that women who have experienced sexual violence at some point in their life uh, prior to the pregnancy, it can have a, a you know a significant impact on the pregnancy and especially on the the birthing process. I I would say that having a if, if, when a woman self discloses that that that's a part of her history, the way in which we care for her must be even more trauma informed. Mm -hmm. 
because if we're really honest about it, everybody's had some kind of trauma. So all healthcare should should have a baseline of trauma-informed care, so to speak. So in working with women who have self-disclosed this, and you know this is a part of their history, give them the space to talk about this, if they, especially if they haven't processed it. And also know what the resources are in your community. Is this something that she needs to unpack further during the, during the process of the pregnancy? Know the impact that it can have on the birthing process itself. You know, midwives, we tend to just be like, we're chilled out, the birth take, you know, the birth goes how this woman's birth needs to go. We tend to have more patience with the physiologic process of birth. Women who are uh, survivors of sexual assault, when they are giving birth, oftentimes need even more patience uh, and, and even more time to complete this, this I call it do, doing the work, completing this, this uh, work that she has to do. So I think we really have to pay attention to that and make that part of the care that we are giving her. Um, and remember that for most women in America in particular, we don't see birth until we go through our first birth um, and understand that there has to be a level of, of instruction and teaching when women are pregnant to be unafraid of the birth process because this is something that we've never seen, something that we've never done um, and, and avail the women that we're caring for information and uh, the educative process of knowing what's going on with her body, what kind of changes happen with pregnancy, what kind of changes happen after this baby comes out. I mean, cause we literally go from being non-pregnant to pregnant and you know, yeah, you know, depending on how soon the sperm meets the egg, you know, I have had women say over the years, it's like, yeah, I was fine. And one day all of a sudden I was throwing up. I didn't know what was going on. Then I realized maybe I'm pregnant. So to, to help her by providing education and instruction and, and modeling um, how to care for yourself, how the pregnancy goes, what are the warning signs uh, that, what, why do you need, when are the, what's happening that you need to call me? those kind of things to give her, empower her with, with education in terms of what's happening in her body and uh, what she can expect and building up her confidence and the ability to do it. I still say to women, you know, women come in, they're afraid, whatever, we're talking. I say to them, understand that women didn't just start doing birth 50 years ago or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. <laughs> As I said earlier, I say to women, Literally every human being that comes in on the planet comes through the process that your body is doing right now and, and you know and will do to get through to um, uh, your, your birth in the postpartum time. So giving them information to help them understand that your body is designed to do this. And, and all of the sisters before you that did this, their, their spirit and their energy is coming through to help you do this as well. So. Yeah, it, we, we have a, uh, as caregivers, we have an immense amount of influence, if you will, to help women feel empowered and, and to help women be able to do this. Yeah. I love that so much. Remembering that, you know, bodies are meant to do this. Absolutely. And the uterus has one purpose, grow babies and get them out. <laughs> and, and, I, and I always say, you know, it practices every month. Oh, we're going to have a baby. We're fluffing up, you know, the lining and everything. Oh, no baby. Okay. So then you have a period. 
And, and people do exactly what you're doing, which is laughing when I say that. But, but that really is what it is, you know, and the ovaries, of course, have the function of, of um, the endocrine function of hormone production and everything. So a lot of times I watch what, what happens to women's faces as we're talking about this. And it's like, wow, I never, and they'll sometimes actually say that, you know, I never thought about it like that. It's like, yeah, you're equipped. You, you can do this. Yeah, since you yeah. and I have talked um, to prep for this interview, I've shared that with so many other women in my life. And it, you know, I don't have children of my own, but the thought of, you know, being pregnant can feel really scary. Because like you said, um, American women don't see birth until it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love the idea, especially for folks who are survivors to really help them and empower them to understand um, that this, you know, we're, we're going to get through this. We're going to figure out how to do this. And you let me know what you need to, to feel comfortable as, you know, as much as possible yes. throughout this process. Yes. And, and being respectful of uh, going back to cultural differences, being, being respectful of the things that um, the woman in her support system feel are important. I mean, I've, I've been honored to attend women from, I, I, I can't even count the number of countries but you know they have would have certain traditions and and a lot of times in the hospital setting you know the, the nurses or the doctors are like do you know they want to wrap the baby in this cloth thing it's like well that's what we do with them <laughs> the only difference is the cloth we can wrap them in sure. those, those those uh striped little blanket things that we wrap all babies in well, they brought their own cloth. So what's the problem? Well, we don't know where that cloth has been. Well, it's been with the family and the baby's been in the mama and I call it the mama soup, been in the mama soup. So whatever the, you know what I'm saying? Just, you know, just ridiculous things that should not bother people. Right. You know, the baby's born. She wants to put this special cloth on the baby, put the special cloth on the baby. It's not deep just because you don't know this tradition or, the, or this, this cultural tradition doesn't doesn't make it any less valuable to the women uh to the woman who's asking for it and it's no it's it's not it's not interfering with your professional duties or anything like that it's amazing to me the stuff that we give people crap about it's like and i've i've been a i've attended women who've had uh musicians you know they're they're playing music in the birthing room i that's cool to me i mean i've been a musician and singer all my life so you know, I remember one birth we did where uh, after the baby was born and mom was snuggled with the baby and dad got out his guitar and we started singing hymns. I'm like, yeah, I grew up on those hymns. I know those hymns. And he's looking at me. I'm like, yeah, I sing alto. Let's sing together. Just things like that. You know, it's so it's, it's supportive of the family and what they want. It's not impacting what we feel like we need to do professionally, you know, or anything like that. But it's affirming for this woman and her family. And it's so easy to do because I got to be there anyway. I got to make sure you're not bleeding heavily after your baby's born so I can listen to the music or I can sing if it's okay with you. It, and and it's, 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 it feeds me as a person and, and certainly as a professional to have been exposed and learned about all these different things over the years that I've been doing this. It's just been great. I'm sure you have many, many do, stories to share. Yes, I could talk all day. <laughs> so, yeah, cut me off because I'll be talking all day. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Samira, I have enjoyed so much getting to have this conversation with you. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us to talk today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. So thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of PA Centered. You can learn more by visiting the links in the episode description. If you or a loved one needs help, a local sexual assault center is available 24-7. Call 1-888-772-7227 for more information or find your local center online at pcar.org. Together, we can end sexual violence. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.